0: The miracles of Jesus serve as signs of redemption, showing in symbolic form what Jesus is doing spiritually through his life, death, and resurrection. You're listening to Wondrous Deeds, a summer sermon series by the elders of Cornerstone Bible Church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. All right, we are in Matthew 8. Matthew 8. Townsend just read us the passage and prayed, so we will jump into it. But I do have a couple things I want to deal with right out of the gate, okay? Uh, first, you can probably hear, I started a few days ago with my telltale allergy tickle in the throat. Those of you that know me well enough know I have this once or twice every year without fail. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it's it's back this week. I've started popping the old allergy pill again. Um, it's helping a little bit, but I'm afraid you might have to deal with with my occasional cough and occasional sip on some water this morning. So you're welcome for that um, as an aspect of listening to me. Um, Also, I need to say that because of the passage we're in today, I'm gonna be saying the word miracle quite a bit. Um, Now I, I say that because I have received a fair share of ridicule and abuse from my family for apparently sounding like a moron because I say the word miracle rather than miracle. I say it like miracle, like marigold, the flower. I don't know why I do, I don't know if it's like a a former regional dialect I was a part of or a childhood disease I had, Um, but I say that, okay, so that's that, I'm cutting my kids off at the pass um, by announcing that so I don't have to hear it at lunch today, Um, and I'm helping you guys out too so you're not like, hey, what's a miracle, what did Jesus do, I didn't know, what is these things, so I'm helping you understand, I'm talking about the miracles of Jesus, okay. And I'll try to say it the proper way, Um, but you know, the potato, potato thing. Um, All right, so I feel better about that, having that off my chest. Uh, We pastors have been looking forward to uh, this month for a few months now, since we decided to focus here on the miracles of Christ and Matthew. Um, And we've been praying that through them, we would see Jesus um, in all of his glory that we would cling with renewed hope to the sure realities of our redemption. And so we're only covering these four passages this month, and they're just miracle accounts, just a few miracle accounts from one of the Gospels. Um, However, our desire is to be able to do that in such a way that it aids you in interpreting and applying all the miracles in devotional times as an individual, in family worship potentially, um, in group study and community groups and other things you might be a part of. Um, So to be able to approach not just these four passages, but have some new tools in your tool belt for thinking about how the miracles work in each gospel and in the gospels as a whole and in the story of God as a whole. So if any of what's preached this month uh, piques your interest in these wondrous deeds of Jesus, then by all means, take time to study it further. Take time to prayerfully read through the gospels with a specific eye on the miracles of Christ. I think it will be good food for... Um, a weary soul, maybe a not-so-weary soul, good food, all right, for you to to take in. I want to recommend, uh, as well, two books to you on the subject if you want to read further and study further on this. One is uh, called The Miracles of Jesus by Vern Poitras. All of us elders read through the first two parts of that book. Um, In preparation for these messages, we found it to be helpful uh, in dealing with the the big-picture significance of things mean um, the overall story is of God, as well as helping us like focus in on holding to some specific hermeneutical uh, principles and how to interpret and understand these things in light of the whole. Um, so some of our direction um, in this series um, has been based on and been uh, we've found it helpful um, in looking at that book and reading it. The other one I'll mention is The Wonder Working God, The Wonder Working God by Jared Wilson. And that book is a little smaller. It's admittedly a little more, bit more readable book. Um, and it's designed to reveal to us Jesus' divinity, his authority, and his mission to us through the miracles, and to bring us, um, along with reading the scriptures, bring us to worship our Savior and King Jesus. So as we come to our passage this morning, um, as we come to the other passages that we'll look at in the next three weeks as well. Um, let me just lay a very quick foundation of why we're going to the miracles. Why are we thinking about the miracles? How should we approach the miracles? How are we to see them in the overall life and mission of Jesus? We don't want to take a whole sermon just to kind of lay out these things, but I just want to um, give us a taste of it so we have a little bit of a framework going into this morning and the following weeks, maybe doing a favor to the other uh, three guys that'll preach. I don't know, maybe they'll have to come back and Um, reiterate or correct me um, as well, but just hopefully doing a favor for the series as a whole and saying this is the lens through which we should be looking at the miracles of Jesus. Um, We're working off the assumption that the miracles of Jesus were real events and they were actual deeds of the Son of God 2,000 years ago. We don't believe this assumption to be an antiquated, naive take on the gospel accounts. we, We can hold to a certain arrogance, right, as modern people. Um, we know how the world works, right, on macro levels, on micro levels. We no longer need this fantastical explanation of how things work, right, and how the cultures of bygone eras tried to understand what was happening when they saw something take place. Right? So we find ourselves sometimes standing above those things and thinking like, well, you know. Jesus is doing something unique, right? He's certainly doing something unique in his miracles, but there's gotta be some kind of natural explanation in part of it, right? Like when we tear away the worldview of the biblical authors in their time, and we're able to look at the miracles with 21st century um, understanding eyes, we would probably have a better understanding of what's really going on there than what the biblical writers thought, right? We, We can tend to think that way, Um, And yes, certainly um, a worldview that's atheistic has to think that there's some natural explanation uh, to Christ's miracles. Um, There would be um, whole groups of Christians claiming to be Christians that would say the same thing, like, well, yeah, that's not really what happened in those times, or this is the gospel writer's way of trying to teach us something about um, what we can become Um, and what Jesus reminds us of what we can become. But um, it's really just, uh, you know, fantastical discussions to get our attention. We need to reject that type of thinking about the miracles of Christ. The arrogance of the ditch on the other side of that is to assure ourselves that we are not complete results of the reigning worldview, right? We are Bible-believing evangelicals, after all. We most definitely do believe in the supernatural working of God in history. That may indeed be true. I hope it is true but that is our creed. But let's not be so blind as to not think, or to, let's not be so blind as to think that we're not at all impacted by the scientific naturalism of our age. We hold to our salvation not being anything that can be done in our own power, right? That it's God working a spiritual miracle of bringing dead people to life. We hold to the giving of the Spirit His work of sanctifying us, changing us, and forming us into the image of Christ. It's a spiritual reality that stands above the natural explanations of uh, pick-your-up-by-your-own-bootstraps type of moral conformity. We believe that Christ supernaturally calls and transforms his bride, the church, and gives us a supernatural love for one another and to be sent out into the world, a love that the world sees as well, to announce the kingdom of God in Christ, yet when the realities of our sinful hearts and the realities of a broken and sin-cursed world hit us, we so often tend not to hold fast by faith to the supernatural promises of God, but we hold in faith to the temporary solutions wrought to us by the natural world that end up proving empty in the end, and yet we return to them so often. We look to substances and to sex to numb the pain and stress of life. We look to medication alone to fix our fears and attitudes. We look to entertainment and consumerism to grow the church. So, just to say that before we get too high and mighty on what we say our orthodox beliefs are are on miracles, may I suggest we all need a reminder as uh, the sons and daughters of God that miracles are real. Um, And with our union with Christ, God is pleased to do supernatural things in our lives and in his creation. So as we step into these texts, we do need a healthy view of an appreciation for the supernatural, of God's ability and desire to step into creation and do the unexpected as a deliberate part of his purposes and plans for his glory. Yes, he has indeed chosen process and progress within the workings of his creation. He providentially works in ways that are tied to unity and order that he established at the very speaking the world into existence. But believing in the supernatural inbreaking of the maker into his creation and into his creatures is a reasonable faith since we believe there is a God and that he is the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. So what were the miracles for? What do they continue to be for us today as well? This is something to latch onto, not just for this morning, but for all of our weeks together. The miracles of Jesus serve as signs of redemption. The miracles of Jesus serve as signs of redemption. That sounds maybe pretty simple, maybe, maybe pretty self-explanatory. Let me tease that out a little bit. Uh, Poythress, again, in his book, The Miracles of Jesus, says this. The miracles tell stories that show analogs to the grand story of redemption. God redeems people from sin so that they may enter into the glory of God's presence. The small stories of redemption point especially to the climax of redemption in Christ's crucifixion, death, resurrection, ascension, reign, and second coming. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all introduce the ministry of Jesus to us with Jesus' pronouncement that The kingdom of God is at hand, right? Luke specifically announces this um, through recording Jesus' entering the synagogue in Nazareth one Sabbath morning and reading the scroll of Isaiah 61, Jesus reading it and then saying it is being fulfilled in their midst today. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Christ's miracles and the gospel writers' usage of these miracles in their explanation and presentation of Jesus, they serve as signs to this reality. They show that he, Jesus, has power and authority over the physical creation and even over principalities and powers so that he might set his people free. Indeed, he might set all aspects of his good creation free from the powers of evil and slavery to sin. They are inklings of our true need. So just like Jesus was fine with providing a cup of water, yet telling people he was the living water that would eternally quench their thirst, just like Jesus was fine with taking a sandwich and eating, but yet saying he didn't need it because he had food that these other people didn't even know of, and that he himself was the bread of life for all that would follow him. So the miracles point to the true need of every single human being that has lived, lives now, and will live. We need ultimate redemption and restoration. We need a healing, a liberating, a salvation that is cosmic in scope. And so when we approach these miracles, we see him do things in the physical creation, when we see him do things in the lives of people, he is doing something amazing. He is stepping into creation and doing something supernatural. Even things that we would say these people that we'll visit along the way need. They needed salvation. But this salvation that he's giving them is not ultimate salvation, it points to that ultimate salvation. And so these miracles remind us over and over again that Jesus doesn't just come to play tricks, to do magical things, he doesn't just come to fix our earthly temporary needs, but he comes and fixes our spiritual need which trumps all of that. But in his giving spiritual salvation, He fixes the temporary, he fixes the the physical, he fixes the natural aspects of his creation that are at war with his good word. So this is how we need to view the miracles as we dig into them this morning and in the few weeks to come. So I want to take a few minutes now just in our passage to look at this specific miracle. I don't want us to be caught up in like saying, all right, miracles are signs of redemption, So I'm gonna read all the miracles and I'm gonna be like, oh yeah, look, there's a little picture. The big picture is salvation. Oh, here's another little picture. It's all well and good. Big picture is salvation. That is true. That's how we need to understand them. And yet each passage has its own texture, its own nuance, its own beauties that help us see so many facets of who God is and who our savior, Jesus Christ is and the call to faith for us as followers. So let's just take a few minutes to walk through The passage now to point some things out and then really just to drive one main aspect of application home to us this morning, yet a a main aspect of application that I think plays itself out daily, potentially hourly in our lives, Um, and so is a profound reminder that we need. So as Townsend read for us, um, we see here Jesus is just... uh, healed many, and he's interacting with scribes and the leaders and the crowds. He's been teaching. And in verse 18, Jesus gives orders to go over to the other side. And in verse 23, it says that he gets into the boat and his disciples follow him. So what they are going through here is uh, the Sea of Galilee, Now, the Sea of Galilee, we know approximately, right, I think probably most of us understand where the Sea of Galilee is there in the land of Israel. Um, The sea is about 64 square miles in size, okay? So some people would probably scoff a little bit of it being called the Sea of Galilee, right? They'd be like, well, it's the Lake of Galilee. It's not really sea size, is it? Um, To give you a little bit of perspective, Back Bay here in Virginia Beach um, the Sea of Galilee is like one and a half times the size of Back Bay, right? So it's not, it's not massive, but um, at the same time, some of you that have been on Back Bay, when the wind's blowing in a certain direction, understand it's big enough. <laughs> it's big enough for what's going to happen here, right? <clears throat> and so Jesus calls his disciples, his disciples follow him into the boat. We see here um, just a quick little thing that, Jesus is the one that is planning this. He's taking the action to do this. He is not the one being dragged by the disciples in the boat to cross, but he is the one who has plans to cross. He desires to cross, and he calls his disciples to follow him into it. So they're in this sea. <clears throat> they are crossing the sea. Mark's account of this says that there are other people with them, too. So it's not just one of these boats that would maybe hold about 15 people, had maybe a little bit, little sail that would go up, and so you have you know, power by rowing and sometimes a little bit of wind power with a sail, too. This is a boat that have normally been used along the shores. So fishing boats and things, they're not venturing out too far into the water usually to do their fishing, Um, So it's not necessarily a normal thing that they're jumping into the boats and like heading straight across. It's not something that they were always wanting to do because of the nature of the sea. But nonetheless, they're passing and it's a group of boats, probably as Mark tells us. But Matthew wants to focus in here on the intimateness of Jesus's immediate disciples and him in the boat that Jesus is in. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea So that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Jesus was asleep. These storms are common on the sea. Uh, The storms uh, come out because the the sea is is so low, um, below sea level, and so the winds come out of the hills and blow across this open water, um, and it can stir up some pretty, pretty good storms. Um, So when we read this and we think, well, like it's not a very big body of water, they're in this boat. Like, what does swamped by waves really mean? Was this just like the disciples being a little over anxious because they weren't used to being in, out in the deeps? What's going on here? Um, this, by all accounts, is a legitimate storm um, that is showing that it can sink the ship. Um, the disciples' fear, in a natural sense, is warranted. Um, their fear of being swamped and overtaken by the storm is warranted in a natural sense. Let me pause and give you a little understanding, too, of even the imagery and symbolism of the sea in these um, fishermen's minds. Um, I grew up in Nova Scotia. Um, this was an area that was caught up in the beauty and the mystery of the sea. Um, it's basically surrounded by water. It, it boasts the world's highest tides. Um, You know, there's not a whole lot that we can, like, brag about up there. So it's like, we got the biggest tides! Take that! Um, It has a rich seafaring history. Um, The 18th and the 19th century age of sail um, was uh, the heyday of the little town I grew up in. Um, That was, in fact, at one point, like, one of the biggest ports of the world as far as shipbuilding and sending ships out um, with trade and such things. And so the the province's motto is even Canada's Ocean Playground. Uh, it's hard to live there or even visit for an extended period of time but it's very hard to live there for any length of time and, and in a sense not get caught up by the magic of the waters, um, to not get caught up by the grip that these things and the folklore of all of it and the history can even have on uh, the human spirit. Um, you, you talk to my wife and ask her and she'll kind of probably like roll her eyes, she's like oh yeah, you don't, don't get him started talking about all of that stuff, he'll start to wax poetic about all of it. Um, And so in that setting, there is um, a real element of the whole culture being wrapped up in the sea. For the Jewish people, there was a little bit of a yes and no to that. They were a people, and especially in this region, that were made up of a lot of fishermen. The sea provided them with sustenance that they needed. Um, There were things about the culture on these um, cities along the water of the sea that were, of course, wrapped around the livelihood that came from it. Stepping back even further, though, in the worldview of these people were a healthy uh, tentativeness of the sea. Um, We talk about the Sea of Galilee, and it's a little bit humorous that they called it the sea because not too far away sits the Mediterranean, right? Now, the Mediterranean, to the Jewish people, was... Just you just didn't really touch it. You didn't go there. Like maybe along the coast, you ventured out right there and fished um, within plain sight of the land, but to be a seafarer that heads out into the unknown is just, it's, it's really a, a foreign thing. Even if you read the commentators on the psalm that Chris read earlier, the, those that went down to the sea in ships idea is a picture in that psalm of what God is doing in the lives of his people but the commentators will say like, "That's not normal for Israel. This is probably like Israelites like serving in exile or doing something that was not part of their normal life and culture." So the mystery and the symbolism of the sea took on this nature of the unknown, of the unsurety, of the fact that it was chaotic. There were things that could happen to its surface with people sitting on it, storms like the one we see in our passage today, and the, everything under the water. The deeps, it is unknown. And so when we read things in the Psalms, when we read other, um, um, even other cultures of that time, there is a, there is a, a symbolism of the sea that speaks to um, fear, speaks to evil, speaks to darkness and unknown. So this is important for us as we try to get a glimpse of what Matthew is showing us here and how he's using these things in his story. The uh, storm is significant. Those of you that are uh, sailors know what it's like to be in a storm. Um, you've probably been in much bigger storms than these folks, but you've also been in a bigger boat, so don't hold it against them. Um, I, I was in a, a ferry one time, like hundreds of cars and hundreds and hundreds of passengers and an overnight crossing over the Gulf of Maine um, as a kid, and... Uh, We got caught in a gale and there were 24, 26-foot waves, and even in that big boat um, it was pretty scary to, I don't know how old old I was in elementary school or maybe Jake's age, my son's age, Um, and it was a a pretty scary thing, and even though it was a big boat, you knew that the sea um, had power that went beyond your comprehension, and that even though that was a big boat compared to me, it's a very little boat compared to the Gulf of Maine. Uh, The disciples are feeling that right here, right? This is not a big sea, but this is also a small boat, and the storm is such that it can take them down. And so we see this picture of being taken by this, this evil, this chaos, and being brought down, being sunk. There's this understanding and picture of death, which is a reality of any work and every livelihood that takes place on the waters. Again, in my town growing up, um, by the time I was growing up there, the age of sail is long past. Um, But fishing was uh, the livelihood of the vast majority of people in my town. Lobster fishing was um, the biggest, probably, of all of them. Um, And our county was stuck with the lobster season from November to February, the worst time of year uh, to be out in the waters surrounding Nova Scotia in a little lobster boat. Um, and so the uh, first morning of lobster season, there was a long tradition of all of the wives and families of the fishermen and even a lot of the townspeople coming down um, along the whole waterline of the town and watching these scores and scores of lobster boats stacked to the hilt with lobster pots head out um, early in the morning when the sun was coming up to go out and there were prayers and things said that, that their fishing season would be blessed and And all the rest. But as there was this excitement about the potential that the sea offered them for a new fishing season, there was also a very healthy fear of what they were heading into for the next few months. And it was um, very often that ships um, and fishermen were lost every season. As they head out with the expectations of a new season, they inevitably had to go down the harbor and past a little point in the harbor where. There sat a memorial, a fisherman's memorial to all the people and all the fishermen that had been lost at sea. And so, around the world, as people function on the waters, they understand that death is a reality for them on the the sea and on the waves. This is all playing into this picture of these verses here. The disciples have a healthy fear of the waters, a healthy fear of the storm. And here, the one that called them into the boats to send them to the other side is asleep in the back. And so they do what any of us would do, right? Like, we don't have any idea what to do. We don't know what to do. We can't help ourselves. We're going to drown. There's nothing else we can do. Here's the rabbi that we're following. Here's the guy that's doing some pretty amazing things if there's any hope for us at all, it's, it's right this guy right here, right? Let's, let's get him to help us. And so they do what any of us would do, even with, our under, even with the disciples' understanding at the time. And they go to him and say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, on a very basic level, for them in that moment, they're using words that's pretty much just like them going to say like, hey, master, the one we're following, Help us out here. Like, we're dying. We have no hope here. Can you do something? It's easy for us maybe with our understanding of having the whole Gospels and the the Spirit's work of illuminating our our minds and hearts here to look and say like, oh yeah, they get it, right? They're calling him Lord. They understand who he is. They know he's the only one that can save him. They're running to him. This is great. That's not happening here yet, as we'll see in just a moment. This is a desperate cry to say, the one last person who hasn't been part of our conversations here, maybe he can do something about it. Take care of this for us, or we are without hope. And Jesus says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Again, we can look at this from our perspective and almost like smirk a little bit, right? Because we're like disciples, what, what are you thinking? You know, like, if, if ever there was anybody, anybody that, that could help you, it's the one that's with you. Why are you so desperate? Why do you not look at Jesus who's sleeping and understand why he is so, even a little bit? It's uh, funny a little bit because we know that Jesus is Jesus. We know that there's, Nothing that's going to thwart the plan of God for Savior. We know that Jesus could have said, stood up, and truthfully said um, what the, uh, the the vice president of the White Star Line, uh, unfortunately, said back in 1912. Jesus could have stood up and said, "This boat is unsinkable, and nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by the passengers." But he stands up and he says, "Why are you afraid?" O you of little faith. I want us to see here for a moment the beauty of the incarnate Christ, the fact that he is the God man, and that our salvation only comes through him being fully God and fully man. Here is Jesus, who in a very human way is tired and asleep in the boat after rigorous work and after rigorous ministry. He's walking the life that we live so many ways. There's nothing wrong with him going back and sleeping. But he can also do that because he is the man that we should all be, but we can't be. He is the one that has full confidence and faith in the will of the Father. And he knows that he will not be drowned. He knows that the Father's will will not be thwarted in his life. And so we love the fact that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, as the author of Hebrews reminds us. We love that he has lived the life of man. He understands what it means to be weary and tired. But in his very human part, truly obedient human part of his life, he is what we can't be apart from him. He is the one that is indeed the fullness of faith that he Admonishes his disciples of and says that they don't have the kind of faith he has. He says they have a little faith. And he rose and he rebuked the winds and sea, and there was a great calm. So therein lies the supernatural, the miracle aspect of things here. At one point, there's a great storm, Matthew says. And now, through the work of Christ, there is a great calm. Whatever was the turmoil and the fear coming out of the storm is now an equal peace, an equal calm. He has restored the situation. Now, this faith that he calls out to the disciples here, what exactly is he saying? Is this a quantitative faith? That he's saying, like, you, you're, you're on the right track, but you just don't have enough of what you need yet? I would say that what he's saying here is that he's telling them that they don't yet have the kind of faith they need. It's not about adding a little bit more faith to the faith they already had, but they need a transformative type of trust in the one that they were looking to for this deliverance. When they asked him, Lord, save us, we are perishing It was a certain type of desperate cry, like, please do something, but it was not yet the sure cry of faith saying, Lord, you are the only one we can put our trust in. Save us. We have complete confidence in you. It's a little bit like a crowd that follows a magician, right? They know what a magician is and does. They've seen Jesus do things that blows their minds already, and yet just like the crowd that follows the magician and then they watch him do a magic trick, they still gasp whoa, that was amazing. It's a magician. What are you expecting? In the same way, the disciples have watched the workings of God in Christ. They have watched Jesus heal. They have heard him speak. And yet when he does this thing, they're like, what? Whoa, that is amazing. Says that they marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? It's as if they're saying, like, who is this guy that he would, like, come in here like he made the place? What's going on? This is a sense of marveling that helps us, again, understand a little bit what Jesus is saying with his words of little faith. They're amazed at what he has done. And as we read through the Gospels, we see that God does what he intends in the miracles of Jesus in the lives of his disciples to bring them to the point where they continue to be amazed by the Savior, but amazed in a sure and confident and a spirit-fueled faith. They understand who indeed he is. They understand that he is not just one that can help them in going across the ocean and save them from perishing in the sea, but he is the one that truly delivers them from death. He's the one that delivers them from spiritual death and brings shalom and peace to life. We see, we've seen the humanity of Jesus and what Matthew brings out here. We see the divinity of Jesus here as well. It says that he arises and he rebukes the waves and the wind. This is the same word that's used when he speaks to um, the demons and the demon-possessed throughout this gospel and in other gospels, when he rebukes them. It's the word that's used when he goes to folks that he has worked miracles in, and he's seriously telling them, do not talk about this yet. My time has not yet come. This is a word that speaks of authority, a word that speaks of the person saying it have the right, having the right to say it having the right to speak to what they're speaking to and for those that they're speaking to or the things they're speaking to, to obey that authority. And so we see the divinity of Jesus here, that he would have the audacity to speak to a storm and have the audacity to believe that he has the authority to tell it to stop and it listens, it obeys. We see the authority of Jesus here. We see his power over creation. And we see him hinting at this faith that's necessary for the disciples and in him speaking to that in light of the storm to picture what he can truly provide them to his divinity as well. Who else can subtly or in other passages not so subtly tell people that he alone can provide them spiritual salvation, salvation from sin and death that he alone can be the one that will come and to restore not just souls, but all of good creation that God has declared good. And so we see his divinity playing out here as well. He is the one alone who gives and sustains life. He is the one that brings final and ultimate salvation from death. We will see a little bit as we go on in our passages that this wonder at who this man is will transform in the lives of his disciples so that they are indeed saying, you can do this, Jesus. We need you. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. And you see this faith that they lack beginning to form in them and their understanding of who Jesus is. In the disciples' minds, because of the worldview they had of the sea, there's not just what's happening here in the moment for them, but there's a background understanding of the sea, as we've already talked about, being a place of chaos and uncertainty and evil and death. But in their minds, they have psalms, like the psalms we've read the story uh, this morning, psalms that are full of symbolism of the storm and God's work uh, to control the storm. There's also very likely in Matthew's mind of thinking of the Jonah story. We know that in a few times, Matthew uses pictures of Jonah and the story of Jonah to bring something across in his gospel. We see Jesus in chapter 12 telling his listeners that just like Jonah was sent down into the depths, he died essentially. He was sent to the grave for three days in the fish and was risen to life. So in the same way, Jesus will descend, he will die and he will raise to new life, and something better than Jonah has come. So, the work that he's going to do to go down to the grave and come up again is exponentially, like unfathomably more intimate and infinite than what Jonah did and what Jonah personified in him going down to the depths and being raised to life. And so, here too, we see the divinity of Jesus. He is the better and sure. Jonah, there's a sense in which the disciples are starting to understand as they respond to this miracle, they're just beginning to understand, whoa, something greater than Jonah is here in our midst. In the story of Jonah, we see portrayed and brought very clearly to bear that it is God alone, Yahweh alone, who can calm creation. It's Yahweh alone who has a handle and authority over all things. And here is God in flesh, having the same power to do what the sailors stood in amazement by, by the work of Yahweh. Jesus is the one who does these things. Jesus, the son of God, the God-man, has the power alone to do these things. So this narrative brings up the fundamental issue of life and death, of our need for salvation, but not just a need for a temporal salvation from a storm of life, but an ultimate salvation from the storm that is our life, the storm that is our sure death, if it's not for the work of Christ. Let's take a minute to just think about this passage as far as, application. This is not, and this might come across as a disappointment to you at first, but this is not a passage that we can run to to be called to trust God, to deal with our individual little storms of life, that we have this constant battle that we're going to face with our own hearts of sin and with the environments around us that bring hard times and things that seem almost overcomable to us, and we can just run here and say, like, I believe Jesus, like, call a calm and a peace over this specific little storm in my life now. This is not a passage that gives us that. This is not about just calling us to trust Jesus in our little individual storms of life so that he will come and take it all away. He will fix it so we don't have to go through those things. It is not that. But... Does it help us in facing and walking through life's inevitable challenges and trials and sufferings? Yes, yes, indeed it does. How can it do that exactly? What we need to remember is that if Jesus is the one that takes care of ultimate and true need for redemption, works ultimate salvation, so that our faith in who Jesus is means that there is the coming of calm, there is peace, there is the reality that we no longer are tied to sin, we no longer have a destiny of damnation and being rightly condemned under the Father's wrath, but that he will save and he will make all things new. When that is the umbrella in which our reality exists, then all of a sudden storms of life take on a whole new meaning the storms of life might not seem as big as they usually are. And because of what scripture teaches us, the storms and difficulties of life are totally transformed by the same Jesus that takes care of our cosmic need for salvation. I have a quote hanging on my office wall um, by a guy, Joshua Slocum. He was um, a sailor that was born and grew up not far from where I grew up. He spent several years in his grandfather's lighthouse, not far from where I grew up, and he was the first person to circumnavigate the world by sail by himself. Um, he did it in the late 1800s. Um, he he said this, and I just love this quote because, again, like my uh, my past and my culture that I grew up in is tied to these seafaring things, like I said, but he says, but where, after all, would be the poetry of the sea were there no wild waves? Now, that just has, like, a certain poetic ring to it, right, when you have a little bit of the the sea in you. Where, after all, would be the poetry of the sea were there no wild waves? But you consider, who can write such a thing? (laughs) What type of person can write in a poetic way and talk about real storms that can bring them down, can bring them to death, And do it in a way they say like, hey, it's beautiful. It's got a sense of mystery to it. It's very likely somebody, not somebody that's like really, really, really afraid of the water, right? (laughs) But it's somebody that has walked or lived a life in the midst of the water, in the midst of all that it brings, in the midst of sailing, and there's a certain sense of confidence that they have in their abilities and themselves, to face not just the calms of the water, but to face the storms of the water so they can say, you know what? This experience and this life and this this thing that I love, this sailing of the seas, wouldn't be the same. It would lack something if there were no wild waves. A person with a sense of experience and confidence is really the only person that's going to write this right. Well, from a Christian standpoint, I think there's a way, and this is how I often think of it, when I see this quote and I'm reminded of it, that there's a way in which we as believers can take difficult things and see them with similar eyes as Joshua did to storms at sea. Because Jesus, the one in whom we have complete confidence in, the one who, not just in our own uh, confidence and building our own experience, our own power, but the one we look to, and he has done everything that um, I was just speaking of a minute ago, in bringing about ultimate salvation, he transforms the meaning of these things in our lives. And so when we walk through the wild waves, when we walk through individual storms of life, when we walk through difficulties as a church or as a people of God in a certain culture at a given time, we can certainly lament, and we should. Should We can certainly pray that God would and change and deliverance even in temporary ways and that his sovereignty and will would be shown. But we pray that his sovereignty and his goodwill would be shown not always in the taking away, but even in how he works in the midst of the difficulties. Because, again, not our confidence in ourselves in making it through, but we hold fast by faith to the one that has promised that he already has delivered and he will ultimately deliver and that he will deliver and work through the waves, through the storms, that there's actually a necessity to these things, that there's a beauty to life and challenges and difficulties because it causes us to endure and makes us steadfast in a way that wouldn't happen if they weren't there. And so as Christians, we don't try all the time to run away from difficulties. We face difficulties with a sure and steadfast faith that Jesus is who he has said and displayed himself to be in Scripture. That he is indeed the only one we can run to to say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. But to do it confidently saying, you have done it, you are doing it, and you will do it in a much greater way than I'm even asking you to do now in this one little thing. And so we can hold fast to our savior Jesus in times of conflict and hurt and suffering. Proper faith drives out fear. But do we instead find that our fears too often, like the disciples here in the storm, drive out our faith? Do we find that our creeds and our lip service to the power and authority of our savior and King Jesus and his sovereign redemption in our lives disappears? when we're hit broadside by difficulties of various kinds. Oh, that our faith would be the kind of faith that can say with the old hymn writer, I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me, of weary ways or golden days before his face I see, but I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. As we look ahead in scripture, we see John and his vision of the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 say that the sea was no more. I don't think this is John giving us a geography lesson here. I don't think it's about us being able to understand the topography of our eternal home. Now, who knows? Maybe the new earth will not have vast bodies of water anymore. I don't know. But the point here is that in that day, when Satan and sin are behind us once and for all, and all is made right, there will be no more uncertainty, no more chaos, nothing more to fear. Death will be destroyed. Salvation will reign. So may we hold fast by faith to Jesus Christ. He is without a doubt because of his power to save our only hope in life and death. Let's pray. Jesus, we need to see you for who you are and so we thank you for your scriptures that aren't just here for, to bring us to salvation but to remind us in the midst of your saving work that you are God and that we can trust in you in every way. You are everything that we need. God, may we find ourselves continually formed into you Christ's image so that we would have a steadfast faith through the power of the Spirit, not in our own doing. That we would believe not just with words, but the very essence of who we are, that Jesus is the one who powerfully saves and has conquered death. May we walk the uncertainty of this life now confidently, in the footsteps of Jesus who himself faced difficulty and trial and suffering to bring us to you, Father. May we too know that you are working to bring us in this life to yourself and that you, by your grace, even take what is meant for evil and even what is evil and you use it for our good. So this is a simple truth in so many ways and yet, It is too hard for us in our own strength to hold on to. So may you work. May your will be done. May we rejoice and may we say confidently in a way that proclaims that you reign, that you save, that you deliver, that you are the one that has full control and authority over creation. May we sing even now with hope that you are indeed our hope in life and death. In name pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.